Welcome back to Instrumental. In this episode, I'm trying out a new interview format for the very first time ever. I'm really excited to share this discussion with my friend Jessica Riley, a music researcher and soon-to-be music therapist who is doing really exciting work with children with cochlear implants. This conversation was a lot of fun to record. Um, We were both at the Society for Music Perception and Cognition Conference in New York City this past August. Just a heads up, we did record this interview in an NYU dorm room, so please forgive any inconsistencies in the recording quality. Um, But regardless, Jessica in this interview shares a lot of her expertise about speech prosody and her thesis about how drumming may help children with cochlear implants hear prosody more accurately. You'll also learn about how to recognize and be more mindful of your speech prosody in everyday life so that you can communicate your message more effectively. Jess, Jessica Riley is our interviewee, our very first interviewee on Instrumental. So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. (laughs) Um, So Jess, you and I know each other from grad school. We both went to University of Miami and we met as part of the music therapy department program. Mm-hmm. Yes, program. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think something that we really connected over was the shared love of music science. And speaking of, we are at the Society for Music Perception and Cognition Conference, also known as hashtag SMPC19. <laughs> um, if anyone wants to go back on Twitter and like look up that hashtag, we've been hanging out in New York City for the last four or five days. Four or five days, mm-hmm. yeah. And meeting lots of cool music researchers. Um, yeah, and we're repping the music therapy world mm-hmm. here at SMPC, too. And we've met a lot of cool people. Yes, we have. Uh, and some music therapists from other countries, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's a really good mix here. Um, but you actually... So, my background, I started as a music therapist and later got interested in all the music science and the music cognition. You took the opposite <laughs> yeah. path in your career. Um, so, can you tell us, like, where you got started? Because we... Now we like have we're trying to bridge music therapy and music science together. Right. Where did you start though? So my undergraduate degree was in violin and neuroscience, and I kind of was always looking for ways to combine music and neuroscience because I love them both and I wanted to kind of meld them together. Um, so I became interested first in music sciences, um, specifically neuroscience focused on the kind of use of music for like brain functions or like how music. Uh, changes brain functions. So I worked in the auditory neuroscience lab at Northwestern University with Nina Krauss, um, looking at a lot of studies that were kind of trying to tease apart um, the, the effects that music has on the brain and also kind of what that means for like language development. So, so for everyone out there that is like, oh my gosh, how do I get a position like that? Did you go to Northwestern for your undergrad or what were your, what was your undergrad degree in? Like, how did you weasel your way into that really yeah. cool position? That's awesome. Well, so, I mean, I did the violin and neuroscience degree was from Indiana university. So I actually didn't go to Northwestern, but I had emailed a postdoc in the lab at the time and cause I was really interested in their research and 
kind of just basically sent a cold, cold call email being <laughs> like, do you take research assistance? And they were like, yes, come interview. And so, um, a lot of labs actually have positions like that. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. So what does being a music cognition research assistant actually involve? So it involves, um, pretty much like all of the legwork of doing data collection. So I would, we were looking at, um, for example, one of the studies looking at the neural responses to sound that preschoolers have and relating that to how they synchronize and how their rhythm ability is and how their language abilities are and kind of seeing if we could find a biomarker for um, dyslexia. Uh, But the biomarker being how the child processes sound because uh, we know that children who have dyslexia actually um, have differences in the way that their brains process sounds. We kind of were trying to see if we could identify them early on. But wait, so dyslexia? I usually think as a visual. I don't. I, yeah. I don't have dyslexia. I think of it as like switching what a B and a D looks like visually reading on a page. Right. But there's actually implications for how they're hearing sound. Exactly. Wait, and tell it, me more about it that. It seems kind of counterintuitive, but if you think about it, if you can't, if your brain isn't responding to sound consistently and it might be difficult for you to hear the difference between ba and ga because those are actually pretty close Mm -hmm. but the timing of the change between the b and the a and the g and the a is different and so the theory is that the kind of deficits that we see in reading for children with dyslexia actually originate in auditory processing because reading is pretty much just Like, when we're really little kids, our parents read out loud to us, and Mm -hmm. that's essentially sound coming into our sensory system. And when we're reading to ourselves, like, in elementary school, it's like we're getting that – we're internally creating that sound. Yeah. Oh. And it was interesting. Learning those phonemes and then mapping them onto, like, the visual letters. But if you're unable to consistently hear the phonemes – your phonological awareness is probably not going to be very high. And that makes reading quite difficult because you didn't know the sounds in the first place. Cool. Yeah. Okay. So I would contact families. I would schedule them for sessions to come to the lab. I did a lot of testing, um, which can mean different things for different labs, but in our lab, it meant collecting neural data. So I was doing EEGs and auditory brainstem responses. Is that the little caps that you put on? EEG is the cap. Mm -hmm. With like all the electrodes running over? Okay, Mm -hmm. cool. And then auditory brainstem is just like some single electrodes. Um, Mm -hmm. And then we would play quote unquote games, but really they were sort of, (laughs) they were assessments of language ability, IQ, rhythmic ability, um, attention, a whole host of, a whole host of things. And then processing that data too. And kind of keeping track and doing all of the sort of administrative work behind that. Cool. Mm -hmm. Oh, my gosh. So, okay, so you have this really strong interest in research. And then, and you're working with a, I guess I would say, clinical population. These aren't typically developing kids. They have. Yeah, because at this point, when they're three years old, they haven't started to really read yet. So we're kind of trying to see, like, across development. We brought them in every year. So we're trying to see if we can look back to when they were three years old, could we have predicted that they ended up getting Oh, dyslexia? okay. Mm-hmm. Wow. So 
Good old longitudinal stuff. Good old longitudinal. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I, I became really interested in that clinical aspect of it, and I really wanted to continue doing work that really helps people. And so I started looking into other ways that music science can be used to help clinical populations, or, I mean, typical populations as well. But so then I came across. Uh, so yeah, how did you find music therapy? Yeah. Because I feel like every music therapist has their origin story. Of right. Like how did? Oh, when did you first hear about music therapy? And I feel like it's always something kind of funny too. What is yours? Well, mine actually was that my current professor came to tour the lab that I was in. Your professor at University of Miami. Mm-hmm. Who was that? Kimberly Sonamore. Kimberly Sonamore. Yeah, That's she so came to the lab to tour it. And I had heard of music therapy before, um, because one of my best friends, her mom is actually a music therapist. So it like, it wasn't that it was totally new to me, but she came to tour the lab at kind of like a really pivotal time when I was kind of trying to decide what my next step was. And she was like, yeah, we do music therapy and we like really need people that do science in music therapy. And I was like, this sounds great because I want to be doing something with my knowledge that is actually applicable in in a more direct way. Like I want to be the one that is like even basic science is applicable, but I wanted to kind of be directly or feeling like I'm directly helping someone doing the good things with music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, and that's something that I notice at this SMPC conference. It's not that I think feel like every researcher here, no matter Mm -hmm. if they're a music theorist or a music educator or um, a computational neuroscience or whatever mm-hmm. scientist, they could always say, oh, yeah, it could theoretically help with this, but what's missing is kind of the, like... You the follow-through. The follow-through. And, mm-hmm. you know, they might invite, you know, people with Alzheimer's disease into their lab to work on autobiographical memory or something. But mm-hmm. what is that... What is dementia and working with someone dementia week-to-week or, like, on a long-term basis? Right. And what does that mean in, like, a holistic kind of sense? Yeah. Um, so I think that's so cool that you started in the science world and now you're integrating more into working with people with special needs of Mm -hmm. all types. Um, Okay, so you hear about music therapy, and then kind of what, like, and you want to help people. Um, Did you have an idea of who you wanted to work with necessarily? Did you want to keep going with the dyslexia, or did you have another clinical population that you wanted to, that you're interested in? Mm -hmm. So I was also really interested because the lab kind of worked in tandem with the audiology clinic at Northwestern. And so I became really interested in working with um, individuals with hearing loss. Um, And so I kind of knew pretty early on that I wanted to do something that bridged music therapy and audiology and uh, just like general, I'm really interested in how hearing loss changes the processing of sound and also how things such as like cochlear implants just totally change the processing of sound. Um, like that's really fascinating to me. So I was Can always, I pause you there? Yeah. Okay. So our most recent episode was titled the auditory pathway. Oh, and nice. I, I mean, my clinical experience of working with people that are hard of hearing is mostly older adults and they mm-hmm. might either just like just have that hearing loss or they're using a hearing aid, mm-hmm. but I don't, I don't know much about how music perception changes. Mm. So you mentioned cochlear implants. Yeah. What does music sound like to a child or a person living with a cochlear implant? Or do we know this yet? We, we can kind of guess what it sounds like. Okay. Um, we can simulate sound that is pretty, pretty akin to what it probably sounds like through a cochlear implant. Although, 
um, it's funny because we are still hearing it with typically hearing ears and we still have sure. all of our hair cells. So, and there's also individual variants within a cochlear implant. So there's kind of a give and take, but the general sense is, um, when you get a cochlear implant, uh, it's typically because you have severe to profound hearing loss and the acoustic hearing or kind of like the, na- the mechanisms, the physical mechanisms in your ear are not transmitting sound to the cochlea. So what the cochlear implant does is it creates an electrical way to bypass that entirely. And it's just total electrical stimulation and electrical encoding of sound that directly stimulates the auditory nerve. So it bypasses all of the mechanical parts that aren't functioning. Okay, so they're stereo cilia, is that the right word? Yeah. Like that transducer. Mm -hmm. This is like fresh on my mind because I just wrote the episode about it, luckily. Okay, so, and I believe that they, like, timing information is much more accurate. Like, rhythms in music are perceived pretty. Yes. It's more the pitch information that's compromised in their Exactly. So, so you and I, um, as typically hearing individuals, have about 20,000 different hertz or frequencies that we are able to perceive. However, that's like higher than Mariah Carey's highest note. She can yeah. Sing oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, <laughs> although actually she can sing pretty high. <laughs> did you see the bottle challenge she did? No. So there's something called the bottle challenge where people were trying to like get a twist off bottle cap off somehow, like with oh, the ninja thing. Oh yeah. yeah. And she, I don't know if it's real, but she like had the, you know, top, almost you know off but it was still sitting on the bottle and she sang this really high note and it like shakes and then it like pops off so that's amazing okay I would maybe believe that just because she has such a high voice yeah it's incredible okay and I want I want to believe it (laughs) (laughs) but yeah um so we have like 20,000 or so uh different possibilities of frequencies that our cochlea can respond to however Um, when the cochlear implant is first implanted, uh, currently we have 21 channels and each channel is basically encoded as a different pitch because the channels are placed all along the cochlea along the, so there's still some like tonotopic organization. It's just like everything, a lot of our normal hearing frequencies are like lumped into one channel. Correct. And wow. Uh, so The issue, too, is I'm sure you talked about the cochlea is really tiny, and so are these Mm -hmm. electrodes, and there isn't uh, yet consistent mapping of exactly where in the cochlea these electrodes go. We know that, and and typically cochlear implants are constructed and and implanted to benefit speech production, Um, not necessarily music production. So they're kind of in general areas that are, like, important for speech, but still, it's only 21 different frequencies. And I I love music, but in a day to day Mm -hmm. survival kind of thing, you do have to, you got to prioritize. Can you understand what people around you are saying? So that totally makes that. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's interesting though, because it, it varies from person to person where the electrodes fall and therefore where the pitches they perceive are. Some people have electrodes that kind of on the cochlea span a, a perfect fifth in music. So basically everything within that perfect fifth is encoded at the same pitch. So that's like bum, bum, bum. That's a perfect fifth, mm-hmm. more or less. So basically everything within that is all kind of heard as one note. Mm-hmm. Oh, bum, 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 bum. That would all be one note. Yeah. Dang. I mean, not always, and it, it depends on the person, but that is possible. And so 
pitch information is not readily available to them because a, because of those number of channels and B, because the sound is like compressed mm. through the, the implant. So pitch information isn't quite robustly communicated, but rhythm and like timing information is. And so that's actually usually what um, is used to kind of hear the speech and to understand the speech. Okay, cool. So you're about to finish your music therapy degree. Yay! And as part of that, (laughs) with any good master's degree, you did your (laughs) thesis, which is like this big research project. You have to do an experiment, Mm -hmm. um, learning how to do research. For most of us, I guess you had already kind of learned the ropes. You always do stuff. You're always learning things, though. Yeah, there's always something else to do. Something else to learn. Um, So can you tell me more about your thesis project? Because it had to do with coping. You worked with children who had cochlear implants. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Great. Um, So since we're talking about kind of the different sort of information that's available through the cochlear implant, we know that pitch is not uh, preserved very well through the cochlear Mm -hmm. implant. And so children with CIs, another way to say cochlear implant, um, are not able to match their typically hearing peers in, in measures of pitch perception and production. However, they do match their peers in measures of rhythm perception and production. And this is pitch information in both spoken words and also music. Yes. Because music, obviously, for understandable reasons, is compromised or different. Mm-hmm. But also the pitch information in speech mm-hmm. is, is also affected. Right. And okay. so the kind of the way that pitch and rhythm come into play in speech are actually through um, an element called prosody. And prosody is the natural variances that we use in the timing of our speech, the timbre or the quality, and also the pitch to communicate not only which words in the sentence are most important, but we're also communicating how we feel. So you can hear Mm -hmm. emotion in something. So if I say, I love cake. I sound really excited. Or if I say, I love cake, the way that my prosody is reflected in those sentences kind of helps you to get an idea of how I'm actually feeling. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of times when I'm like talking to a best friend or a partner or someone, I almost lean into that more than the actual words they're saying. So like if I came home and my partner said something like, "Um, yeah, I had a good day. Right, it's sarcastic. No, I don't believe you at all. Exactly. I don't believe the raw content of your words at all. I'm reading into the prosody. Right. Okay. Exactly. So, like, I love cake. Like, I actually really do love cake. But if I say, I love cake, it kind of sounds like, oh, I'm sad that I didn't get it. Like, it changes changes the meaning of of what you're saying. And actually, um, when we hear as an infant, when our mothers sing or when their caregivers um, sing to us or speak to us, they're often using what we call infant-directed speech, which is actually just exaggerated prosody. If you think about how you talk to, like, a tiny little baby or a tiny dog, you're like, oh, you're so cute. I love it. And your, your prosody goes up and down. Your timing is much more um, exaggerated. And so that's actually our first kind of cue into how we learn prosody. Like, hey, pay attention. Right. This can be this really dynamic thing that's interesting. Mm-hmm. So babies learn how to pay attention to it, mm-hmm. that it's important. Exactly. Cool. Okay. But children with cochlear implants, um, because often for children who use cochlear implants, they may have had congenital hearing loss, which means that they, when they were born, they were not able to hear sound. So they kind of didn't get that experience oh my as an infant. And, and not only that, 
Um, so they lost that experience, but they also then when they get the cochlear implant are still not able to perceive pitch information very well. So double whammy, double whammy. So, and we see that in how they're able to perceive and also produce prosody. Like their speech doesn't sound quite like that of their typically hearing peers. And it's more difficult for them to hear like the emotions behind what someone is saying. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, so my thesis was kind of centered around utilizing a drumming to speech paradigm that I kind of created as a part of this project to help them improve their perception of speech rhythm because rhythm is an element of prosody. Okay. Um, to then help them better perceive prosody because of their difficulties in hearing the pitch of it. So if they're maybe not able to hear the way that the voice goes up and down during speech, but we're able to kind of better help them hear the small variances in time that we use to emphasize certain words, um, the the rationale or the kind of theory is that that can be like their mechanism of hearing prosody and kind of bypass the inability to hear pitch as well. Okay, so much most of us when we're hearing prosody in someone's voice, we're using both pitch information, but also the like stress and timing of the words. Mm-hmm. You're not necessarily predicting that that pitch information is going to get any better. So you're trying to get them to pay more attention and fine tune their ability to hear those timing stress differences. Exactly. So okay. not only improving their ability to detect the different timing in speech, but also kind of like as a secondary benefit, if they're able to hear when important things are happening in a sentence, maybe they're better able to perceive what those important things are. So even, I mean, it also might be possible that we're improving their perception of pitch because we're kind of cueing them into where the important information is happening because they're saying, okay, these long parts of the sentence is like, this is where you should pay attention. And then maybe by that kind of facilitating their pitch perception. Cool. Okay. So I know we're going to get into like the experimental design, but can you give us a preview of the punchline? Is it like, yes, drumming actually makes a difference in prosody for kids with cochlear implants and maybe, or some things, or is it like a no? Yeah. Well, so basically um, I would love to say yes. So I'm going to say yes with a little asterisk um, <laughs> because it was, you know, I, it was a design that did not have a control group. It was a relatively small sample size. Um, so we can't necessarily say like, yes, for sure. The intervention is definitely what made their prosody perception better. But the children in the intervention did improve in their perception of both pitch and rhythm within, within music and also their perception of emotional prosody. Okay, so strong maybe. So strong, maybe. Okay. Yes, with an asterisk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now tell me how we got to this strong plus maybe. <laughs> um, so, okay, so let's start off with who was in your study? Who were these participants? So the participants were preschool age children. So they were between the ages of three and five years old. And they, <gasps> little ones. Little ones. They, they were so little. And they... Uh, To be included in the study, they had to have been exposed to English um, because actually the like rhythmic timing of English is different than Spanish. And And again, you're doing you're recruiting people from Miami, Florida, where there's a lot of families that are bilingual in English and often Spanish. Right. Got it. So, I mean, they can speak Spanish additionally, Mm -hmm. but I wanted them to have that exposure to English because the timing of English is different. Um, And then the other criteria, they had to have at least one cochlear implant. So... 
I had 12 total participants and 10 of them had two cochlear implants. So one on each ear, but then two of them had one cochlear implant and then one hearing aid on the other ear. Oh, okay. Interesting. Which is different because that means that the acoustic hearing on their other side is actually intact, which turns out is better for them because that means that pitch information is actually more available through that ear. Yeah. It's closer to a normal, typical hearing ability. Even if it's still somewhat, they need some help. Correct. Yeah. Got it. So, all right. So you've got these three to five year olds. Any little nuggets. What do they do when they get scheduled for a test or an experimental session? What happens? So we did four weeks of weekly music therapy sessions that were all centered around drumming to the stressed syllables in nursery rhymes. The nursery nursery rhymes were like the bulk of it. Um, And then also like one to two word phrases that we repeated over and over again. Um, And then we also practiced uh, like synchronizing with a quote unquote metronome. Now preschoolers are, are too young to be able to like hear a metronome that just sounds distracting for three Yeah, it was so distracting. <laughs> so the way that um, other researchers have done it is to do a social synchronization paradigm. So basically, oh, I yeah. listened to a metronome for everything throughout the whole intervention. You're listening through like an earbud or yeah. an AirPod or something like that? Exactly. Okay. Something that the, the child also can't hear. Got so it. a tiny little earbud. Um, and I'm listening to the metronome and then I'm speaking or drumming at the same time as the metronome. And then the kid, I tell the participant to drum at the same time as me. Got it. So, cause social synchronization is more developmentally appropriate for preschoolers. Right. Cause there's like more of that social motivation. There's something exactly. in front of you. It's interactive. They want to, it's much more engaging. It's more playful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Got it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so are you doing the same thing over all four weeks? So we altered... the same thing? Essentially. Okay. The the thing that changed, uh, we measured at the beginning and at the end, we measured their prosody and their music perception. Mm -hmm. And uh, each week they had a different nursery rhyme. Okay, so these are like ones that we would all know probably is regular English, like Humpty Dumpty or something like exactly. that. Exactly. So okay. I chose nursery rhymes that were based on um, alternating directly between one stressed syllable and one unstressed syllable because I wanted to kind of put them in basically a duple meter. Okay. Um, if you, if you want to think about it that way. We don't need like all stressed all the time because that's not how we actually talk. Right. And if okay. we think about it, like other poems that don't have direct alternation between stressed and unstressed syllables, it's like hard to synchronize with, right? Because if you think about it, like if the meter of something is changing all the time, it's like hard to find the beat, right? So I basically was trying to make the speech stimuli, the nursery rhymes, as easy as possible to synchronize <laughs> to. So I had the metronome in my ear and I was saying, um, Jack. And Jill went up the hill, and so on and so forth. Um, and You've said that thousands of times, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. Thesis. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so when you were clapping just now, those were the stressed syllables. Right. Yep. And so I would demonstrate that to the child, and then I would tell them um, that we would do it again, and I would say the words, and they had to hit their drum at the same time I hit mine. So we weren't actually clapping in it. We were both sitting with a conga drum Mm -hmm. and hitting our drums for the stressed syllables. Okay. We unfortunately don't have a drum here in our fabulous dorm room accommodations (laughs) at NYU. 
we're doing our best listeners. <laughs> um, okay. And then how long were the testing sessions? Cause I can't, cause I guess a standard music therapy session is 50 to 60 minutes. Probably not way too work long. Yeah. <laughs> Five-year-old. Well, so they theoretically ended up being between like 20 and 30 minutes, kind of depending on how well the child was doing at kind of just like getting through all the activities because I had like a set number of activities that we had to do for the sessions. And so, um, some kids needed breaks, some kids need a little more redirection, (laughs) but yeah, typically between 20 and 30 minutes because their attention span wouldn't do any longer than that. All right. So you're talking, you're hearing the metronome in your ear, you and the child are both drumming. Are they talking along with you? Or maybe you said that and I missed it, but, uh, no, they, well, I mean, some kids kind of like for example, with the Jack and Jill nursery rhyme, mm-hmm. like some kids know that one already because it's pretty familiar. Sure. Um, so it, sometimes they just kind of spontaneously started to say the poem or the nursery rhyme along with me, but they didn't have to. Okay. Because um, we were really just kind of looking at their ability to understand prosody, not to use it. But I also think that like that would be another thing to look at in the future. Right. Because they're getting like a different kind of practice. Yeah, exactly. If their words are doing it. All right. So this whole time, what measures are you gathering to figure out? So are you like videotaping these sessions? What kind of data are you actually mm-hmm. collecting? So I kind of fitted the conga drum that the children were using with mm-hmm. a drum trigger or a drum sensor. Like you would find it like guitar center. Um, and it was recording their drumming. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of analyzed their drumming, um, and put it against the metronome stimulus. Got and it. so kind of looked to see how well they were drumming, uh, compared to the metronome. So were they drumming at the same speed as the metronome? Were they kind of how close in time were their drum hits to when the metronome onsets are? Mm-hmm. Um, cause ideally you want them to be happening at the same as time close as, as close as possible. And right. we also want them to be doing at the same speed Got that, it. that the metronome is. Um, and then we didn't record any like speech samples or anything like that, but we did, uh, the prosody measure and the music measure as well. Um, both before and after the intervention. So the music measure is actually this really adorable test. It's called Audi. Never heard of it. Tell me more. Oh, it's, so, it's so cute. You have this little tiny stuffed animal dog. Good start. And his name is Audie, and he has a special song. And his song goes, bum, ba-dum. And the kids have to hear, sometimes Audie messes up his song. So they have to tell Audie (laughs) if he sang his song right or if he didn't sing his song right. So there's two conditions. There's a melody condition um, where Audie, if he sings a different song, he will change the melody but not the rhythm. So it will sound something like, bum, Ba-dum. So the melody was a little different. The mm-hmm. rhythm was the same. But then there's another condition, the rhythm one, where they he accidentally messes up the rhythm of the song, but the melody stays the same. So it might sound like, which is right. So right. The, like kind of just only changing one thing at a time. Um, and right. So we did that test before and after. But I had this one kid who was so cute, and he brought Audie a girlfriend on the last day. Uh, <laughs> his stuffed little dog. It was so cute. Thoughtful kid. Oh my god. So thoughtful. <laughs> Very high in social skills. Yes. 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 
Okay, so you kind of laid out how you're examining your research question, but let's get to the really sexy stuff, the results. The best part. Right, of course. The reason we're doing this. (laughs) (laughs) The reason you did that. Um, Okay, so you told us your... Okay, can you tell us again, what was your research question? So my question was, if doing this whole drumming to speech Mm -hmm. intervention would change the children's perception of either prosody or music, or if it would change their ability to synchronize. Okay. And you told us the punchline was a hopeful yes <laughs> with an asterisk. Yes. What exactly did you find to support that right. idea? So the participants statistically significantly improved in their um, perception of melody and rhythm within music and also emotional prosody. So they were better able to hear the... Um, the affective or the emotional intent behind the speaker. Um, They actually did not get better in linguistic prosody, and that's kind of the ability to hear um, specifically the aspect of linguistic prosody that we looked at was hearing which word in a sentence is given stress. Okay. Can you tell us again, how did you test the linguistic property? Because you told us about Audie the dog. Uh, Yeah, I did the music test. Mm -hmm. What was the linguistic test like? So the linguistic test, uh, or the prosody test, had um, it was administered via the computer, and there were two subtests. One was for the emotional prosody, and one was for the linguistic prosody. The emotional one, they would hear a word that was presented on the computer, like all the stimuli were already pre-recorded, <laughs> and it was like a picture of food. And I would say, I have this friend who's about to tell us, Um, about some foods that she likes and some foods that she doesn't like. And we kind of have to listen to how she's saying it. And we have to say whether or not she likes that particular food. So she would say things like water. And she didn't like water because it kind of had like a falling tone to it. It sounds kind of sad. It's a little slower. Um, So they would then see a happy face and a smile. Oh, sorry. Happy face and a frowny face. Okay. And then they would have to choose the corresponding face. Now the linguistic prosody one, um, they were... Basically, the goal is for them to hear which word in the sentence is given stress. So I would say I had this friend who went to the store, and she was trying to buy some socks. And so she's going to tell us which pair of socks that she really wanted to buy at the store. So they would hear, I wanted blue and black socks. Or I wanted blue and black socks. And you would have to choose the color on the screen of the mm-hmm. of the word that... She it was like her favorite pair of socks. Okay, so that stronger accent mm-hmm. that was okay. Cool. The, yeah, so the stress is usually a little bit of a higher pitch. It's usually kind of like set aside time wise. It's mm-hmm. usually a little longer. Cool. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then, sorry, can you repeat one more time? What were the so linguistic pro- prosody? Did anything improve? Linguistic prosody did not change. Did not, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Okay. Musical. Uh. Yep. What did we find there? They significantly improved in melody and rhythm. So both of the subtests of Adi. So you're drumming, but you saw improvements in both the rhythmic timing and the pitch melody perception. That's super exciting. Isn't that super exciting? I would not have predicted that, at least myself. You know, I... What do you attribute that to? Yeah, so at first I'm like, that's really weird, because we're not doing music. We're doing, like, rhythmic speech. Like chanting. Like chanting, basically. Um, But I think that that actually speaks like more strongly about the mechanism behind the intervention because if 
the whole goal was to improve their perception of rhythm so that they can perceive other elements. Like turns out it works because we're improving their sensitivity or their detection of the durational variances in the stimuli. Um, and it actually happens to be the musical stimuli too. And therefore they're kind of better able to anticipate that and hear when there's a change that occurs. And I think that it also speaks to the amount of overlap that there is between the rhythms that we hear in speech and the rhythms that we hear in music. Right. Cause I mean, experimentally you can make stimuli that strictly only change in either rhythm or pitch, mm-hmm. but usually when we're speaking or when we hear music, mm-hmm. the changes in pitch or these accents go along with changes, slight changes in timing or stressing. Right. We never really just use one. Right. In the real world. Right. In the real world. Yeah. <laughs> Which we don't do a great job of replicating in the lab, but that's, that's actually really exciting. So yeah. There's like, there's hope that there could be generalization effects for these kids with cochlear implants. Yeah. Um, to perceive music better. Mm-hmm. And then do you, even though you didn't find anything different in this study in the linguistic prosody, um, you know, would you have changed anything about your experiment or do you, did you just need like a bigger sample size, do you think? Or like, because mm-hmm. that, at least for me as a music therapist, that's where the like clinical implications exactly. come in. Because that's still really important to improve their perception of linguistic pro- prosody. Right. Um, yeah. What do you, what do you think of that vein? Well, there's a couple of things. Um, so because they did improve in emotional prosody, but not linguistic prosody, mm-hmm. um, a lot of other studies actually have seen kind of an overlap between like amount of musical training and ability to perceive emotional prosody. So it's possible that that just kind of was, maybe we're like just catching the emotional prosody one, mm-hmm. but the intervention wasn't long enough to see any benefits for linguistic prosody. So maybe they just needed eight weeks or something. Right. It was a dosage issue of music therapy. Exactly. Okay. It might be a dosage or it might be like an intensity too. It was only once a week. Maybe it should be more times per week. Got it. Um, there was an at-home training component that nobody really did. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I mean, parents are busy. Parents are so, so busy and I yeah. really don't fault them for it. And I think, you know, if it's going to be an at-home kind of practice thing, like... Um, I think it just might need the sessions themselves might need to be more times per week too, to kind of keep up the practice and keep up the motivation. Um, I also think there wasn't a difference in linguistic prosody because of what we practiced in the intervention and also the measure that I used. So, and again, they weren't like actively practicing the linguistics themselves. They were just kind of hearing you say it Mm -hmm. and they were just moving their hands along. Right. So to me, I would think like, Oh, maybe if they just, if you had had like part of your session be them repeating back with you, maybe like they right. feel it more in their oral motor muscles or something. There was a component of the intervention. So every time we had a nursery rhyme, they would repeat it. Uh, there was like a part at the end where we did like speech synchronization. So oh, I would okay. repeat or I would say part of the nursery rhyme and then they would say it back with me. And like anecdotally, they like kind of tried to match the timing of what I was doing mm-hmm. um, so that we said it at the same time. But I also think that um, we ended up practicing something different than what we tested, I think. So we were practicing, um, like, drumming to the stressed syllables, which happened, like, every other syllable. But the test itself was more an assessment of, like, 
the which word in the sentence. So not necessarily a syllable at that point. Um, God, okay. Because some of the socks were like purple or like you know, things that are more than one syllable. So sure. I think it's actually like it's a different uh, step up the hierarchy, right? Because like <laughs> words like are bigger than syllables. Yeah, complex yeah. To do, mm-hmm. yeah. So I think maybe we either weren't practicing the right thing or the intervention wasn't long enough to see a benefit. Um, yeah. Okay. So this podcast is all about practical takeaways and like finding ways to put the science into practice for music therapists that are out there working with kids that are hard of hearing or with cochlear implants. Um, do you have like any takeaways or tips for them? What should they be doing if they're doing drumming with their clients? I don't from your clinical background, yeah. and then we'll open it up to, like, more just general life hacks for you. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a music therapist. Mm-hmm. What would you recommend taking away from all this? Yeah. Well, first of all, if you're working with children with cochlear implants, go read everything that Kate Gefeller has ever written because... Kate Gefeller's one. I mean, I haven't mm-hmm. met her yet, but she's the cochlear implant mm-hmm. queen of music therapy. Yes. For sure. Yeah. She has so many articles that are so practical and she walks That's through cool. saying like what, you know, what you should do in sessions, what you shouldn't do. Um, for example, uh, because of like the way that sound is processed through a cochlear implant, you actually shouldn't be using super complex sounds and you shouldn't be like singing and playing drums and having guitar and having like six other things in the background. Like you, if you really want them to perceive rhythm, you should just do something with rhythm. If you want them to perceive pitch, you should do something with pitch. Is that related? Because it's like getting bottlenecked at these 21 electrodes. And like, so what's it just getting lost anyways or washed out or it can Mm -hmm. be overwhelming? Yeah. Okay. Um, So I would recommend like scaffolding things. So if you're gonna kind of have a complex stimulus, like, um, and I I think Kate Gefeller says this too, but you start out like with the guitar, then you add the voice. Okay. Or you start out with the voice then you add a guitar, yeah. depending on like what you want them to pay attention to, just so that they're able to kind of set a baseline for, okay, that's the guitar. And like and verify that they're responding to it and right. can pick up changes and then add something else mm-hmm. and add that. Even though like two voices to us doesn't seem that complex, there's actually a lot going on perceptually right. with that. Good to know. And using um, familiar songs too is of course a huge thing because if they're familiar with it, they probably already know the timing of it. And so they're mm-hmm. better able to... Um, again, same kind of idea as the drumming to speech intervention. They're, be- they're better able to hear when those changes are going to happen so they can sing along. Yeah, and get that almost immediate success. And then mm-hmm. as the therapist, you can like make it incrementally more challenging towards mm-hmm. whatever goal you're doing. But you want to start with that like basic. Be- they're feeling that they're competent. You know that they're competent at right. that rhyme or whatever. It is. Yeah, exactly. Cool. All right, so for the rest of us, because cochlear implants aren't all that common in the general population, um, what are the takeaways with speech prosody, um, how we communicate the emotional content of our voice and our our words? Um, What what life hacks can you have for us? (laughs) Well, you know... What should I be more aware of when I'm communicating through prosody? Well, I think, you know, doing this project really just kind of made me think about how how much I listen to what people say behind what they're saying. A lot of times when you communicate, um, it's actually the prosody that people listen to more than the actual meaning of the words that you're saying. And, mm. and if you think about that, when you kind of like have a re- every, something in your everyday life, um, you know, there are a lot of moments where somebody says something, but the tone of voice that they have tells you something a little bit different. And I think just kind of like being aware of that and being aware of, um, 
like how how we say things affects how other people understand them also. Um, I also think that uh, just kind of thinking about the music that comes out of speech is like something like a really cool, not necessarily life hack, but kind of like a little life enhancement. (laughs) Um, Something to appreciate. Yeah. Something to just kind of sit back and appreciate and marvel at. at. Um, There are these videos of this drummer who drums along to movie clips. And there's one of him drumming along (laughs) to a scene in a scene in Willy Wonka and watching that, um, I watched it at the beginning of this project and I was like, there is so much rhythm in speech because he's drumming along to every syllable. He's like mimicking it on the drum kit using all of the different timbres and sounds. And it was just like, was such a reflection of prosody. And I like, I wonder if we could link that to the website. Or yeah, something? I will definitely include a okay. link of that in our show notes. Yeah. Um, oh, so yeah. Cause we're usually like, just hearing people talk and we're like getting the the gist of the message. Mm-hmm. But then there's this whole other channel that might be unconscious to us that we're still picking up on. Um, but can, so going back to this drummer though, it kind of sounds like, like, can you kind of hear the conversation or can you hear the dialogue, even though it's just a drum kit? Absolutely. Kind of oh, that's so cool. It's so cool. It's like, well, you, I mean, you can hear the speech in the background and then he's playing okay. on the drum kit, but he's still, he's mimicking things that are going on in the conversation, but through musical elements. So like maybe they get a little angrier or more intense and he uses like more in, more intense or harsher timbres mm-hmm. on the drum kit and he goes a little faster, maybe a little louder. Um, so just, I think kind of like making pretty transparent the connection and the overlaps between music and speech because um, there's another one too that I wonder if we have you talked about the speech to song illusion on your podcast I have not yet, yet done an episode on auditory illusions yet but I would love to do that oh, that's be, that'd be a super fun one yeah there's one well and there's another actually music science podcast that plays off of that that one is called so strangely because mm. yeah coming up soon coming up soon <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. You know, that kind of, maybe that explains why, um, so one time I was on the super long flight and, um, so of course they have like the movie things in the back of the right. seat in front of you. And for some reason my movie thing didn't work, um, or the remote control. So I got stuck watching this movie in a foreign <laughs> language oh, no. without the subtitles. Like I just couldn't figure out, how, but I could, I wasn't like fully watching the movie, but I could also kind of get the gist of like the emotional mm. moods of the characters on screen it's because I was picking up on their prosody. Right. And you, you heard when maybe the inflection of their voice went up, if they were kind of asking a question. Um, you also probably heard, like, if they slowed down a little bit and they got really low and everything was really droopy and they sound really sad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of really interesting, even, like, I think about the Charlie Brown parents sometimes, like, <laughs> wah, 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 wah. <laughs> like, it's not words, but you totally get, like, the, yeah, oh, yeah. man, emotion from that. <laughs> Cool. All right. Um, anything else we should know about prosody or anything I didn't happen to bring up that you wanted to share with us about your thesis or about music science or music therapy or building bridges, like all that good stuff that this podcast is also about? Yeah. I mean, I think that something that's really cool that you and I talk a lot about is kind of like bridging the gap between the science and the clinical practice. Because I think that it's, there's a really easy tendency to just do one. Um, mm-hmm. and well, it takes a lot of training to do music science. It takes a lot of training right. <laughs> to be a music therapist too. So like right. people don't have time for all that sometimes, but exactly. you can still, 
build your network and build relationships. And like everyone I've met at SMPC is really friendly and very approachable. Like even the people that, you know, seem like big wigs or whatever, they're usually pretty nice. And exactly. Open. And I think understanding that you don't have to be the person to do it all, but you should definitely be always trying to better your practice, whatever your practice is, if it's research or, you know, being a clinician, um, by taking everything you can from other fields, whether it be, and I think like researchers should do that too. I'm not just saying like clinicians should take from research, but I also think researchers should talk to clinicians. Like I love talking to people and being like, what is a problem that you're having in sessions that, you know, maybe we could have some sort of science look at. Right. To understand it better so we can problem solve and serve mm -hmm. people better. Exactly. I love that. It's all about just kind of whatever we can do to communicate and, I mean, yeah, exactly. At the end of the day, we're serving people better. Great. Well, let's end on that note. Um, Jess, where can people find you if they want to follow your research more um, or if they just want to, I don't know, connect with you? Well, connect with you and see what you're up to next. <laughs> so I do have a Twitter that I'm getting better about using. It is actually <laughs> at Urban Fiddle. Okay. <laughs> I don't think I follow you on Twitter yet. So, okay. At Urban Fiddle. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm gonna find My you. Instagram handle is the exact same. <laughs> so just search for Urban Fiddle. Excellent. Well, thank you so much um, for our like inaugural interview on Instrumental. Um, also listeners, thank you so much for listening. If you really love this interview format, I'm trying it out, but let me know on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, you can follow us on both at at instrumental pod let me know if you want to hear more interviews and yeah we'll see you next time for the next episode